You know, City Church exists so that all people can believe and thrive in Christ. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my story and why City Church is so important to me. And spoiler alert, it changed my life. You know, City Church has been used by God for over 25 years to help change many people's lives, to help save marriages, to help hurting people get healed. And quite frankly, I think that God has used City Church for over 25 years to help populate heaven. And, you know, I just want you to know that we could not do this without your tithes and your offerings. Now, a tithe is simply 10%, and it's what God calls us to give back to him, that portion that he has already blessed us with. And so here at City Church, there's many ways that you can give. We have giving boxes at each of the exits. We have giving kiosks in the lobby. You can give anytime online at city.church give, or you can use our text to give functionality. And we thank you so much to do that. Now, last week, Brent talked to us about what free grace was all about. And for the next few weeks, Witty and I are going to unpack that just a little bit more into what that really means. But first, I want to put this into a little bit of context. You see, I grew up here in San Antonio in the 80s and 90s. And when I remember certain aspects of my younger years, I can't help but chuckle just a little bit. Some out of fondness and some out of outright embarrassment. And so, hang with me. I remember when it was totally in style to do overalls with one shoulder on and one shoulder off. Do y'all remember that? And then like crisscross came on the scene and their whole thing was to wear your clothes backwards. And so I'd have my clothes on backwards and I'd have one shoulder on and one shoulder off and it was way too hard to go to the bathroom. And then you had to top that off with the chorizo bangs. Did anybody else rock the chorizo bangs? Yeah, and I'm just a little bit competitive, and so it was my goal to have the highest hair in school. And so my morning routine looked something like this. It was like curling iron, tease, aquanet, tease, aquanet, tease, check it, tease, aquanet, perfect. You know, and then there are, I, I actually truly believe that the closer, the higher the hair, the closer to heaven. <laughs> you know, and then there are the other things that weren't fads, but are a part of the fabric of who I am and what I identify with. Like how mariachi music makes me smile and close my eyes, but then an instant later makes me want to throw a grito better than Roger Clemens can throw a baseball. Or like how when I was a young girl, Selena taught me that the washing machine wasn't just for washing clothes but how to baila esta cumbia. <laughs> Two of y'all got that, okay, great. So I also grew up in a very religious family and many of the traditions of the religion are still practiced in my extended family today. My, my extended family still prays the rosary, they still honor the Virgin Mary and bless each other with the sign of the cross. And although it's not how my husband and I practice our faith with our children and our family, we still absolutely 100% respect it. It's a part of me. It's a part of the significant part of my life, and it's a fabric of who I really am. But not everything about my personal experience at my old church was positive. And it's a reason why, a big part of why I'm at City Church today. You see, I was, when I was younger, my wild and free lifestyle caught up with me, and I made some choices that uh, landed me at 19 years old and single and pregnant. 
but in spite of my mistakes, I was determined to be a good mom and give my son the opportunity to have a great life. And in my belief system at the time, part of that meant getting him baptized as a baby. You know, I remember the day, and I remember getting him dressed in his, like, his all-white little outfit, and he had these long socks that were pulled all the way up to his knees, and his little soft, squishy shoes, and I remember his big brown eyes and his soft brown hair and his chubby cheeks looking up at me uh, and cooing and spitting up and doing all those things that babies do as I got him ready for his big day. You know, I recall the beaming feeling of hope that I had for him. You know, the kind of feeling that we get as parents when we see our children and they're small and we know they have their whole lives in front of them. They can be anybody. They can do anything. I mean, they can literally change the world. And as a mom, I wanted that so bad for him because deep down, I didn't feel that hope about myself and my future. You see, I believed that I was probably condemned for committing a mortal sin by having a child as an unwed mother. You know, and I didn't want that for him. And so by getting him baptized, I thought I was giving him a chance by starting him on the right path and on the process to be saved and to one day get into heaven. You know, I remember being surrounded by friends and family ready to celebrate the joyous occasion when the priest came out to start the ceremony. And when he came out, he looked around the room and he asked me which one of the men present was his father. And I said, his father wasn't going to be here today. And then he asked me if I was married. And I told him no, uh, and that his father was not a part of our lives. And it was at that moment that he said that he was not going to baptize my son because he was a child out of wedlock. And he walked away. And when he walked away, my hope for my son went with him. You see, I wasn't surprised that I wasn't good enough, but not him. I could not have conceived that my failures could have condemned him too. I was devastated. And I was left feeling like what kind of belief system would cause a church to act in such a way? Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to not feel good enough, to feel like you can never please God, or that you've strayed way too far to be accepted. Some of you may have also been hurt by the church, and you may have walked away as well. But what if none of that is true? What if my negative experience and your negative experience doesn't really reflect who God is and what he wants from us? What if God is way more loving than some of us have thought? You know, most of us know what it's like to not feel good enough. You know what it's like to not be able to live up to uh, expectations. Maybe you can't live up to your wife's expectations, or you haven't been able to live up to your husband's expectations, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or your boss, or your coach. We know what that's like. It's a human thing. But most of us don't expect to be put down whenever we get to church. We don't expect to be turned away at our own church. You know, even in my Baptist church that I grew up in, there was this undercurrent that it's really only good people who go to heaven. And I believe in being good. I mean, if you think about it, the alternative is pretty bad. 
But is being good the key that unlocks heaven's door for you for eternity? Is being good the key to having eternal life? Because if it is, it raises a bunch of questions. For example, just how good do you have to be? And who decides if you're good enough? Does a priest decide that? Or do I, as a pastor, decide which of you get to go to heaven? Can you go to God and demand that he accept you and that he consider you to be good enough because the people that you are comparing yourself with, you know you're better than they are? Or what if early on in your life, you were a really good person, but now in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and 50s and 60s and maybe a few of you in your 70s, you haven't learned your lesson yet and you're not all that good. Do the early years cover for the later years? Well, with questions like that, it makes it pretty difficult for any of us to know for certain whether or not we have the hope of eternal life. How do you know that whenever you stand before God, he won't walk out on you like Michelle's priest walked on, out on her that day? Well, those are the questions that we'd like to answer today. But before we do, I want us to do a little bit of theology, all right? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Witty, no, not theology. You always want to do theology. It's okay. Take a really deep breath. We're in church, okay? It's okay to do theology here. The study of salvation in theological terms is called soteriology. And soteriology is made up of three parts. The first part is called justification, and it refers to being saved from the penalty of sin. And we're going to talk about that today. The second part of soteriology is called sanctification, and sanctification refers to being saved from the power of sin. If you've ever wished that your life could thrive, if you've ever wished that you could get life together and quit making the same old mistakes over and over again, then sanctification is going to be of interest to you in the second week of this series. The third part of soteriology, the study of salvation, is called glorification, and it refers to being saved from the presence of sin. This refers to how you will live the rest of your life after you die. And since eternity, by definition, is for a really long time, it's a question that is a whole lot more significant than many of us think. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're realizing that spring break is coming up, and you just heard what the three weeks are going to be about, and so you were trying to decide whether or not you were going to come to church, and you just decided, I'm not coming. Well, I would understand that, but I want you to know in love, I'm trying to help you avoid a significant sunburn and a hangover. So if you can, make it for the next two weeks, okay? So... Here at City Church, we teach what this series is called. We teach free grace theology. Now, there's a lot to free grace theology, but we can sort of summarize it like this. Free grace teaches that God's grace cannot be earned and his love cannot be lost. God's grace cannot be earned and his love cannot 
be lost. So how is free grace theology different than what you may have experienced in church growing up? How is it different than what Michelle experienced in her parish that day? Well, one of the most influential theological thinkers in the history of the church was a man named Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 AD, and he lived in North Africa. He had an unbelievable influence on what most Western churches, even to this day, teach about salvation. Augustine was a brilliant mind, and this is recognized by people all throughout history. The man was absolutely brilliant. He was a trained rhetorician, meaning that he knew how to stand up in front of people and how to speak and how to persuade people through, uh, through his language and through his skills. But Augustine, despite all of his brilliance, had one weakness early on in his career. And this weakness had to do with the use of the Greek language. You see, Augustine spoke Latin and he studied in Latin. And so, since the New Testament was written in Greek and he didn't have really well-honed Greek skills, Augustine misunderstood our first category. He misunderstood the meaning of justification. And so I want to explain some of that to you. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote about justification. The Apostle Paul said, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now this term, justified, is the Greek word dikaiao, and it is a courtroom term. It means to be declared not guilty. So I want you to imagine yourself standing in God's courtroom and the case has been made against you and it's reasonably substantial. You know, I have no hope of eternity as I stand here before God. But God, in his grace and in his love, slams down the gavel and when he does, he declares you to your surprise that you are not guilty. God declares that you are righteous. He declares that you are good enough. This is what the word justified means. God declares you to be acceptable to him. And one of the coolest things about this word is that he does it in a moment in time. The moment that you believe, the moment that the gavel goes down, you are instantly declared not guilty. That's what justified, that's what dikaio means in the Greek language. However, Augustine, because of his lack of Greek skills early in his career, he didn't understand this. Instead, Augustine thought that justification was a process that takes place over the course of your life where you become progressively better and better. And y'all, we have to understand this if we want to understand why Michelle's priest walked out on her that day. You see, unless you go through the entire Augustinian system for your entire lifetime, you cannot go to heaven when you die. And so when Michelle's priest refused to baptize her son, that's why her little baby boy had no hope of eternal life. 
because he couldn't get into Augustine's system because Michelle herself wasn't good enough. Now, when Michelle's priest did this, I want you to understand he was not being a mean guy and he was not a bad dude. He was simply following the logic of the Augustinian system that his church had inherited. You know, my Baptist church inherited a similar form of this. It wasn't exactly the same way, but it was a similar form. In the church that I grew up in, uh, if a person believed in Jesus, but then sometime after that began to live badly, then what we would say is, is that you were never really justified anyway. We would say something like, you professed faith in Jesus, but you didn't possess that actually, actual faith. But really, all that was is that was our Baptist version of the Augustinian system. You see, in Augustine's system, the burden is on you to perform if you want to have the hope of eternal life. The burden sits squarely on your shoulders. And in Michelle's case, she didn't handle that burden very well. And so her son didn't have the hope of eternal life. It also means that it's impossible to know if you've actually performed well enough or not until after you die. Because while you may hope that you're going to be good, and while you think you're going to be good, and while you'd like to be good, none of us knows for sure that we will end our life good enough for God. And so the August, Augustine system really doesn't provide us with a lot of good news about how to have hope for eternity. But what if Augustine wasn't right? Now, I mean no disrespect by what I'm about to say, but at City Church, we don't think he was right. We believe at City Church that you can know now whether or not you have eternal life. And we base this on the words of Jesus and Paul, who we believe taught free grace. We believe Jesus taught that God's grace cannot be earned and his love cannot be lost. And we believe the apostle Paul taught this. In fact, we believe all of the writers of the New Testament taught this same truth, that God's grace cannot be earned and his love cannot be lost. And so I want to show you how the Apostle Paul taught this. So let's begin with him. Here's what he wrote about justification. He said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The very first thing that the Apostle Paul wanted all of us to know when he talked about being justified is that none of us can be justified based on the deeds that we do. Paul said that it is impossible for you and me to perform our way into heaven. In other words, he simply said, you cannot be good enough. Go ahead and check that off. Get it out of your mind. You can never be good enough to get into heaven. And the Apostle Paul told us why. Look at what he said. He said, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The reason that none of us can be good enough to ever get into heaven by our good deeds is because the standard has been set way too high. 
If you wanted to get into heaven that way, you would have to live up to the righteousness of God. You would have to do right like God does right. You would have to be as good as God is. And Paul says, already let us know, and we all know this by experience, that none of us is capable of doing that. Paul was adamant that you and I understand. No matter how good a Baptist boy I could have been, I could have never been good enough. No matter how much I read my Bible, no matter how much I went to church, no matter how much money I gave out of my salary, I would never be good enough to attain heaven by my own deeds. No matter how much you love your wife or how devoted you are to your children or how much integrity you have when you filled out your taxes, no matter how many of the sacraments you have followed, none of us can do right like God does right. Now, it's true that on occasion, some of you do right. Some of you do right a lot. Some of you probably do right more than I do right. But none of us has a righteous nature. We can't be good enough. And I think we all intuitively know this. I know I can't be good enough. Michelle and I talked for weeks about her story. She knew. She knew. I can't be good enough. And I think most of us know that as well. And that is the reason that the Augustinian system doesn't satisfy. So if none of us are good enough to go to heaven ourselves, how do we ever attain it? Well, let me show you what the Apostle Paul said about that. He wrote, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Paul said that there is only one way for a person to be justified, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. The word faith The best English word for it is the English word confidence. It means to put your confidence in something, to trust in something or someone. You know, whenever my family and I, uh, when, when we were young, We'd go swimming occasionally up in Central Texas and some of the public swimming pools. And, and we went at an age where I was so young, I couldn't swim yet. But I always wanted to jump off the one meter board into the deep end, right? And so dad, who was a good swimmer, would get down there in the water and I would jump to him and then he would take me and he'd throw me over to the edge of the pool and I'd get out and run around and do that over and over again. I knew that I couldn't swim but I knew he could. I was sitting there watching him do it, and I trusted myself completely to him. I put all of my confidence in him. And the Apostle Paul said that if you and I want to be justified, if we want to attain the righteousness of God, the way we do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's putting all of your confidence in him to give you eternal life. Why should we do that? Why should we put our confidence in Jesus? Well, as God, he was righteous like God. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he lived a sinless life. 
And he is the only person who has ever done so. So that when Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, he wasn't dying to pay for his own sin. He didn't have any. Instead, when he died, he died to pay for your sin and he died to pay for mine. It's called, in theological terms, substitutionary atonement. And it means that Jesus alone is the Savior. Performance can't save you. Being religious can't save you. The sacraments can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Only Jesus is able to save you. And there is no discrimination. The Apostle Paul told us that it is available to all and on all who believe. Whenever you and I believe in Jesus, he never turns us away. He never turns anyone away. Y'all, I'm not making this up. This is what the Apostle Paul said. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the Apostle Paul's words were corroborated by the words of the Lord Jesus. This is what Jesus said. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And in another place, Jesus said this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I want you to notice that this word right here, the word has, is in the present tense. It means that the moment that you believe in Jesus, you are given eternal life. You can know that you have it right at the moment that you believe. Augustine was not right. Justification is not a process that happens over the course of your life. You and I can be saved at the moment that we believe. And salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, because it is just Jesus that saves. I felt like the moment that the priest said no to baptizing my son that it was confirmed I wasn't good enough. He sealed my fate, a fate that made me believe that I had messed up way too much and that there was nothing that I could do to fix it. Now, I do want you to know that before I left that day, there was a deacon that heard me audibly crying in the sanctuary. And after he asked me why I was so upset and I told him he agreed to baptize my son. And although I was incredibly grateful, it wasn't enough to help the pain and the very real feeling of rejection that I felt inside and ultimately internalized. And with that, I walked away and I never went back. You know, I spent many years afterwards trying to mask the pain of my past and to take control of our futures because I felt like it really was just up to me to, to have and provide a great future for my son and I. And in doing so, I hoped that maybe by chance I could get back into God's good graces. And I tried to prove to him that I could do better. And so I went into overdrive with performance. Now, my years of overperforming and taking control of everything myself helped me get some very worldly success. 
I mean, I got a degree, I got a great job, I climbed the corporate ladder, I made really great money, all of those things. But y'all, they were just temporary. And none of them, none of them could fill the gaps that I felt inside. And when the bottom fell out of me relying on my own performance, I ended up here at City Church. I actually ended up in that seat right up there. And that day there was a pastor on stage who was talking about grace and he was talking about how much God loves us and he was talking about how his love chases us down and it is just Jesus that saves and I felt like I was learning and receiving who God really is and not who I believed him to be. And while I was sitting there, I got this picture clear as day of Jesus reaching out his hand and asking me to take it. Now, last week I was traveling and I was in California and I went to a local church that they had there for services on Sunday. And as a part of their worship, what they do is they have artists on stage that are painting while everyone is singing. And while I was worshiping, I was praying for this service. I was praying for this message and I was asking God to begin to soften hearts. And I was asking God to work the circumstances, whatever he needed to orchestrate and whatever circumstances he needed to have happen to have the right people that he wanted to hear this message show up this weekend. And as soon as worship was over and I looked up and I opened my eyes and the artist moved away from the painting that he was painting, this is what I saw. Y'all, I believe that Jesus is reaching out his hand to you the same way that he did for me over 11 years ago. And he is asking you if you will take it. You see, our God is not this God that's sitting way up here on his judgment seat, looking down on us, ready to condemn us and tell us that he's disappointed at us. And he's not waving his finger of correction at us. And he's not ready to condemn any one of us. No, he is this loving father who wants to be in a relationship with you. And he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you so that you would no longer be separated from him, so that way your sins would be forgiven. And so that way you wouldn't just be separated from him today, not just today, but y'all for all of eternity. You see, it is no mistake that you are here. It is no mistake that you are sitting in the very seat that you are sitting in right now because God is recklessly and unapologetically chasing after you. And I want you to know that there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from him. You don't have to work for his love. You don't have to perform for his love. You don't have to try for his love. You don't have to get better for his love. There is nothing that you have to do. You are loved. You are accepted. You are seen. You are welcomed right here in this very moment, sitting in that seat, just the way you are. If you have never placed your faith and your confidence in Jesus and you are ready to do so right now, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. And in an act of faith, I'm going to ask you to reach out your hand and grab a hold of his and pray this prayer with me. God, I thank you for loving me so much 
that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to take my place and pay for my sins. And right now, I choose to believe that it is just Jesus and to place my faith in him and all that he did for me and receive the gift of eternal life. God, I am taking your hand and I will walk with you. Amen. Let me pray over you guys for a second. Father, I just wanna thank you so much for all of the people that are extending out their hands, God. They are taking it and they are going to walk with you, God. And I just ask that you hold so very tightly onto them and that they hold so very tightly onto you and that you walk with them all the days of their life. And I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for the cross, God. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for seeing us, Father. And I thank you so much for these new children, these beautiful children that you have that have now entered into your glory for all of eternity. And Father, I also wanna pray for those people that are here in this room and in the video cafe and those that are watching online that have been following you for a long time. And some of us are here and we're so sick and tired of being sick and tired. But God, we know that you are not this judge, that you are walking with us hand in hand. And for so those people, God, I ask that you just pour out and you pour in rest. Father, I ask that you pour in peace. I ask that you pour in calmness into everybody and that you squash the thoughts of us having to perform and having to earn anything that has to do with your love, Father. I ask that you just grant everybody here rest and knowing that we are in your loving arms. And Father, I wanna pray for those people that are still contemplating and they don't know you and they just, they don't know if they fully believe in you. God, I'm gonna ask that you continue to delight in them. You continue to pursue them and chase them down and that one day we can enter them and celebrate them accepting you and you're taking your hand and welcoming them into the kingdom as well. In Jesus' name, amen.